Welcome to Inside Yorkshire with Susan, bringing you intriguing details about the lives of people here in Yorkshire. So, come on in and join us. Good afternoon, this is Susan here from Inside Yorkshire, and I'm sitting on this lovely sunny day talking to Heather Ritchie, who is internationally quite famous. <laughs> We're in the Yorkshire Dales here, and Heather has um, quite a phenomenal background as a rug maker, as well as a teacher. She teaches and she has workshops worldwide, don't you, Heather? Yes, yes. <laughs> How many different countries have you been to with workshops? Oh, I don't know. Well, America, Canada, Australia, and I teach in Africa. And in Africa, yes. Africa is your um, charity yes, input, yes. isn't it, with yes. Rug Aid, which yes. we'll talk about yes. shortly. Yes. In the meantime, just to ask you first and foremost, you're not actually from Yorkshire, are you? You're living mm. in Yorkshire now. Mm-hmm. How long have you been, been here? Um, 1971, I moved, I think. Yes, 1971, I moved to Reeth. I'm from Sunderland. You find there's a lot of northeast people live in the Dales, uh, from Sunderland and Newcastle, uh, and they come up here during the war as evacuees. And my mother moved into Langthwaite for four years, and she was there. My elder brother started school there, and we always came back for our holidays. She also stayed in Hudswell for a while on a farm called Scarcourt, and we loved that farm. And I was born at the end of the war, 1944, and she kept the friendships and we kept coming for our holidays. So I was coming up here from being a baby uh, right up to about 17 and the farm closed and they all retired. Uh, and then I moved off with my jobs and stuff like that. Um, so I hadn't been up here for a few years and I married a guy in the Navy. So it really didn't matter where I lived and he's swanking about these wonderful countries he's been to <laughs> and I said oh you haven't seen anything yet so I brought him up to the Yorkshire Dales and brought him to Reeth and Langthwaite and he fell in love with it so we decided we'd like to come and live here so that's why I'm here so it goes back to my mother being an evacuee right so that was the initial um yes, the initial yes. draw then was that you were familiar with it from holidays yes, too yes it was lovely uh-huh. right and then in later years my, my dad was blind he turned blind when i was six and i missed him and i couldn't bear to live up here without him and he was having dreadful accidents in the town things were being built that he didn't know were there and he was crashing into things and he'd had some dreadful accidents and I wasn't there to look after him. So I did a cottage up in Langthwaite and I got my mum and dad up here with me as well. So we were all together. And he was a wonderful church organist and he started to play the organ at church. He had a computer brain. Up at St Mary's, Yes, he had a computer brain. He remembered everything. He knew all the church music. It didn't matter what you mentioned. He knew it was there. He actually played for the silent movies many really? years ago. Yeah, then he became a teacher... Uh, when he lost his sight, uh, but he was always a church organist, you see. So uh, he had a wonderful few years up here till unfortunately he took ill and died. So yes, so we've, we've had a few years here. I'm not local, but um, I've been here most of my life. <laughs> well, a bit like me, really. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I can't, they called me Heather because my mother was, uh, I was expected, and she was up in the Dales and she didn't want to have a baby up here away from home. My dad was actually in the First World War, so he was on home guard and fire duty for the Second World War. So he was in Sunderland, you see. So she went home to have me in the August. 
1944, due in November, and the purple hills were glowing. And her friend said, oh, if you have a little girl, said, call her Heather in memory of the Dales. And that's what she did, never thinking we'd all come back. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> lovely. That's a lovely tale. Yes. Uh... <laughs> so you you brought your husband here then? He'd, he'd no, not been here before? No, never seen it. And he loved it as well. So, yeah, we got married in 68, sold up in Sunderland and got up here for 1971. And I had a baby then. Vicky was born. Uh, 1970. So, yeah, I came up with a baby, yes. And how many children do you have? I've got three. You've got three? Yes. she was the first. Then I had a boy a couple of years later, and then six years, is it, I think? I've got, I had Chrissy. So I've got Vicky, Lawrence and Chrissy. So yeah. Chrissy's the youngest yeah, then? Yeah, she's the baby and she's 40. <laughs> <laughs> and she's quite involved with you with Rugged, isn't she? She is, yes. It was strange how it happened because she didn't know me dad. He died before I had Chrissy, unfortunately. But Nana was here, my mum, and she turned blind. She had macular degeneration, and so she turned blind. So Chrissy was very involved with helping look after Nana and doing everything for her. And she actually trained, went to university and trained to be an occupational therapist. And she wasn't very happy in the work she was doing at the time in hospital life. You know, it wasn't for her. And... um, she decided to go off and train to be uh, a blind rehab officer and she went up to the guide schools in, in uh, Glasgow and uh, did another two years training and trained uh, to work with blind people. And now she's done more training. She works dual vision loss, deaf and blind. Right. Yeah. Much more challenging, I'd yes, think. Yes, yes. So really it was just uh, strange how it all came to be because mm. she didn't know my dad, you know, it was funny. Right, yeah. Now then, your rug making, when did you start doing that? Well, my mother wasn't a rug maker. People seem to think your mother always taught you these things, you see. But my mother wasn't. She was an embroiderer when she had time or a knitter. So coming to Wreath, I bought an old house with cold, damp, drafty floors and a, a farmer's wife called Hannah Place in Wreath. She came round and she said, you want some mats on the floor? And I'd never seen them before. And I, I didn't know anything about them. So she arrived with some big wooden mat frames, some sacking, a bag of Lyle stockings, if you know what Lyle stockings are, silk and no. rayon, nor a batty, nor a batty ribbed <laughs> stockings round your ankles, old-fashioned lady stockings, really boring colours, browns, you see. And she brought all these stockings and they were my first rugs. But I got the technique. There's two techniques. There's the hooky mats where you're doing long strips and you're pulling loops up with a hook. And then there's the clippy mats, which are short strips pulled through. So you've got a shaggy pile and you've got a flat pile of loops. So I did that for a few years. They were quite boring. I mean, I is, enjoy is, doing it. Is, is that what they would call the old proddy rugs? Yes. Which, which was that? Well, I actually have 20 odd names written down that means the same thing. Because wherever you go in the country, it's regional. They've got their own name for it. I call them proddy mats because I use a proddy to make them. Uh, clippy mats because the clippings. Mm. If you go to Bradford, the tabs, tab ends, mm. fag ends, tab ends, or whatever, really? tab ends, because it was always the waste, the scraps that made the rugs, because it was a thrift free craft, you see, when people hadn't any money, they would use the old rice sacks, sugar sacks, flour sacks, uh, have a handmade tool. So it didn't have to cost any money, you used your old clothes. If you went to Lancaster, they're called list mats, because the list was the selvage, they would cut off the bales of fabric. And that was the waste that people would get for nothing or very cheap at the factory door. You know, they were made with a peg. Either you could make them with a peg, whittle down a tolly peg to one leg, 
and make a point and use a peg. So the peg mats. Right. So there's a lot of names that mean the shaggy pile. Hmm. Now, the flat piled ones are the hooky mats, and they've just stayed as hooky mats because hmm. you're using a hook for those. So I tend to just do the two techniques. They're the two traditional ones to hear. But all those years ago in the 70s, I saw them in the agricultural shows. Oh, no, fanatical about the, the height of the, the little pieces in them, you know, and how well they were put together. But you don't really see them now. Every house, every farmhouse would have clippy mats on the floor and hooky mats in the front room. Hmm. They were the posher ones because they had better designs on them. Right. Because with there being a flat pile, they showed up the design better. So the sitting room and the bedroom would have the nice patterns, but the kitchen ones were the shaggy pile, thick mats, and they would take all the mud off the guy's boots at the farmer's, at the door, in the kitchen, you know. So, yes, they were everywhere. So what technique do you use in the very ornate ones that you do now? The hooky ones. They're they're, hooky. They're hooky. Yes, it's just you can do wide cut and very fine cut and you can use yarns. But it's all that one technique of pulling loops up, Mm. see? So it just takes it down from being wide to narrow. So you have bigger hooks and Mm. use an easier open weave hessian, a medium hook and down to a very fine, like a crochet hook and a finer weave backing. Because I know from... The, some of the, your rugs that I've seen, the pictures are just amazing. I mean, they're very, very detailed, yes. aren't they? Well, years ago, I knew about rugs in America because we had a lady come to Wreath called Joan Bell and she did start some classes in Wreath. Now, Joan Bell had lived in America for many years and rug making in America was huge. And so we all, we all sent for the American magazines, the American frames, the American patterns, the American hooks, because there was nothing in this country to do with rug making in the, this era. Uh, there was before the war, but after the war, the handmade rugs all died out, you see, because people got their fitted carpets in. Mm. Um, so there's nobody making them. So we had to send to America. So Joan taught me to dye and introduced me to scrolls and pansies and fancy flowers. And I was smitten. I can't dare say, I don't like to say I was hooked. <laughs> hooky mats. But I was smitten. Mm. And so I would dye lovely greens. A lot of people don't wear greens. I do like to recycle if I can. But I want colours that people don't wear. And I want bright greens, you see, for grass. Mm. You see, very bright purples for the heathers. Because I love to, to do the pictures of the dales. So I do a lot of dyeing. So I will buy uh, light-coloured fabric to dye. Or find fine sweaters that I can shrink in the charity shops. But even the charity shops are getting expensive now. They are. The, the jumper sale days have gone where I could go out and buy a big bag of jumpers for a pound, being like five pounds for one to just cut up <laughs> at the minute in a, in a charity shop, yes. So it's not as easy now. No. Mm-hmm. I think the first time I became aware of the rug making, that about rug aid and, and what you were doing, was... Um, you had people come and stay at the youth hostel at Grinton. You were doing a workshop there. All right, yeah. And you actually publicised, uh-huh. you had on a, on the laptop, you need some help with it. All right, yes. For the, um, <laughs> for, for Rug Aid yes. up there. And you All had right. people coming, you had people from America, I think most of them, uh-huh. were they? From uh-huh. America who uh-huh. came across to do that yes. workshop. Yeah. But now they have you going back over there. <laughs> yes, they do. You see, once you introduce yourself into America, they want you back. They love to hear your voice, I think. <laughs> they like to talk to you but we've run a rug school at the Grint Youth Hostel for 20 years now every September is that every year now every year it? we've done 20 years 
and we'd bring Americans over. We'll have American Canadian teachers, so we're introducing them to our British girls, just to broaden the network, really, mm. and broaden the horizons. I think it was 1998, I actually made a rug for Mackenzie Thorpe while I did one or two to his design. He was the artist in Richmond that did the square sheep. Mm. And he wanted me to make some rugs to his his design. Um, And they were sold for a lot of money. And I was quite well paid for these. So I had this money in my hand and I said, right, I'm going to treat myself to a trip to America. So I took myself off to America and I went to Vermont. I was in touch with a lady in America writing to her. This was the days before emails, you see, mm. just snail mail, you know, <laughs> and uh, phone calls were too expensive. So I'd write to somebody and she said, oh, if you're coming to America, go to Vermont because that's the biggest rug school we have in America at the minute. And you've got loads of teachers, you meet loads of people all in one fell swoop. So that's what I did. So I took myself off to Vermont and I was doing clippy mats, or the, these proddy mats, the shaggy pile one, as well as the hooky. I was mixing it all to create texture, you see. Uh, when I got there, nobody did it. Everybody just did fine, detailed, beautiful work, rather like tapestry work. Looked like tapestries, but it was hooky mats. And they just loved what we were doing. Um, so and you, you, uh... you ended up demonstrating at lunchtime, mm. showing them in the evening. So I had a wonderful week there. And um, came back and I got a phone call from America, this American voice saying, Heather, would like you back next year to teach for us. Well, I, I had to sit down. My legs were like jelly. I said, who? Me, you know, this little woman from, from Ree to go to America. And uh, oh, she said, yes, we loved your work. We'd love you back. Well, for me, that was like winning the lottery. I mean, to teach in the States. I'm sure. You know, just this... <laughs> housewife in wreath so yeah took me off to the states and uh, that opened up a whole new world because other teachers wanted you you were a draw to their rug schools over all over america there's rug schools all over every state you'll find rug schools it's as big as quilting over there and they're crazy on it and they do spend a lot of money on it over there it's not such a thrift craft as you have here mm-hmm. they will fly to rug schools and spend a fortune on all the equipment they need you see so once they knew I was going to America, somebody else would send for me, oh, come and teach for us, please, Arkansas or Ohio, wherever you want. And I was a draw because you're that person that's that little bit different, you know, from Britain and they just love to talk to you. And a completely different technique, yes, presumably. Yeah, but it's the same technique, but just done in different ways oh, because okay. I create all this textured stuff mixing in yarns now they're doing it now because i also went with silla cameron another girl that lived at hearst at the time who i taught rug making to and she took it on in a big style and she's in nottingham so all these years ago we went together and this is what we taught so of course you see it all over america now because it's all spread once you show one person they're going to show another and it just goes on from there but i'm still being invited to teach I'm turning quite a few down now. I've got a bit longer in the tooth. and it's <laughs> <laughs> You can pick and choose where you go now. Well, I've got a funny back and it's not always as easy. You know, it's very glamorous. It's very difficult to say no. Mm-hmm. But last year I was going to Arkansas and I've been before and I fell in love with Arkansas. It was so beautiful. Eureka Springs. So I asked if my daughter would come and could I make enough money to cover her flights? And then so she could have a trip as well, and she carried all my bags, you see. <laughs> I didn't have anything she to was do. your PA. Yeah, she was. She was wonderful. <laughs> so it's a bit more fun when you've got somebody with you, you see. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So 
next then, how did you get involved with them, or at least how did you come up with the idea of Rugged? What actually? Right, well, that was t- 2007. Uh, oh, no, be- before that, because um, I have another daughter called Vicky, and she wanted us to have this mother-daughter experience, and she planned this trip to Zanzibar, of all places. Mother, you're coming on holiday, we're going to Zanzibar. So that's where we set off. So when I was in Zanzibar, I'm not one for sitting in fancy hotels and on beaches, you know, I have to be busy. And I always have rug making with me in a bag. So I'm always sitting doing something or other. And I'd actually wandered off down into a local village in Zanzibar and I came across the poverty of Africa. And it was a bit of a shock because I've never really... I've been to India and I have seen it out there, but I got such a shock. I said, why are all the children in the streets? Do they not go to school? Oh, no, children here can't go to school. They can't pay the fees. We can't pay teachers. We haven't got books. We have no money. And funnily enough, there were schools built. Somebody built some schools, but they can't furnish them off for teachers. And the women had no work. All they did in Zanzibar was collect seaweed for fertiliser. And there really was a very, very poor area. And I got in my head, I'll treat some rug making like I do wherever I go, you see. So I cut up one of my T-shirts, found a bit of sacking on the streets, went and sat in the village with a crowd round me with a hook and I was showing them the rug making. So it was really from there. And I wanted to get charitable status at that time. Uh, I had great visions of getting loads of money in and going out there building workshops for these people, you know. <laughs> but it didn't actually work out quite like that. Uh, after two or three years, I gave up the fight. I never got back to Zanzibar. It was too expensive. It would cost me a £1,000 just to get there, fly to Nairobi, then fly out to the island. It's not easy. But I had collected some money, public money, and it was worrying me. Because I'd collected money in the hope I was going out there to do this work, you see. But the charitable status never, ever got round to giving me charitable status. They never said no. I just have to keep writing more dissertations. <laughs> Filing cabinet. So did it, did it never actually take no, off as a charity? No, no. They never accepted. I want, they want to know what rug making was all about. And I said, well, I'll come down and teach you in London if you like. I really need to do this because they could make a living from selling these rugs. It's tourists. And they could really, you know, save their poverty, get the kids in school. Anyway, it never happened. But in the meantime, I had two or three hundred pounds in the bank that wasn't my money. It was what I'd collected, fundraising, doing some coffee mornings. And in the meantime, I read an article in the DNS, Darlington Stockton Times, written by uh, Pip Land, Warren Wensiedale and David Poynton. And they were helping a school in West Africa, Gambia, fit a school out with equipment for blind children. And at the time, my youngest daughter just qualified as this rehabilitation officer for the blind. And I showed her this article and we read it together and I said, hey, do you fancy going? Now I've got to use this money on something to do with me rug making to help somebody. So we rang David and Pip and contacted Sightsavers in Gambia and said we'd like to come out and help. Now, in this article, it really, really hit a chord because it said they were locking up blind beggars. They didn't want beggars on the streets. It's a very, very poor picture of Gambia. This president now is building posh hotels, wanting tourism, and it didn't look good with people on the streets begging. Well, blind people in the Gambia have no handouts, no education. Most don't speak English. You only learn English if you go to school in Gambia. So the begging. So if they stop begging, they starve to death. 
Mm. They can't buy medicines. They can't buy anything. They have to beg. And I was distraught about it. I said, I can't bear the thought. Just think, you've been disabled and it's not your fault. And you're criminalised, put in jail. Crazy. And we've got children. So this is what was at the back of our minds. Anyway, put a long story short, sight savers didn't know what on earth I was talking about in Africa. But if anybody wants to go and help them, they're going to accept you, you see. So I told them I would make rugs and I would teach them. I would have a go at teaching them to make rugs. So Chrissy and I set off. And this guy in Gambia from Sight Savers got us 50 blind beggars off the street. In the 50, school. Five, 50, zero. 50, yes, in the school. Just for the two hall. of you. <laughs> yes, the two of us. And they didn't speak English. And it was hot and it's dusty. Oh, my God, the noise. Because they all shout to each other, you see. Mm. You know, they're all shouting, oh, dear, like this all day long. So, uh, yes, anyway, Chrissy set off at one side and I set off at the other. And, you know, that was the hardest week I've ever had in my life. But at the end of the week, we had them making rugs. Right. We really did. My husband made the hooks because he's a, he's a tool maker. He started making my hooks years ago, you see, to stop getting them in from America. And he got the fabulous hooks. And he drilled holes in, or he put uh, long laces in them so they could hang them round the necks so they don't lose them. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you've lost something. One, I noticed one of our guys cutting, uh, chewing his rug, his piece he was working on, he's chewing at it. I'm thinking, what's he doing? And he was cutting it with his teeth, the uh-huh. fabrics. We didn't know there were some scissors, but he didn't mm-hmm. see them there, you see. You know, little, little things like that. No, so it was really great. But the funny thing was, I have an interpreter all the time, and I don't know how they're interpreting what I'm saying anyway, but they didn't know the word rug. But the minute I said mat, it must be universal. Prayer mat, door mat, hey, hey. So mm. I'm clapping to say it's right, you see, because mm. if they did anything right, I'm cheering and clapping, because it was the only way I could get through to them. If they pulled the loops up right, I would clap and cheer. Then mm. they would all cheer. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, it's very tactile. Mm. It's very, you can feel it. So I would get, it's very hands-on. I'd get hold of the hands, put the hook in the hand, and I'd push the hook through the hessian, and we'd grab a piece of fabric, we'd pull it through, pull a loop up. So the message got across by me saying, you're fishing, dawned on me. Now, they all know about fishing. Mm. So they've got a hook, they've got the net, they've got to catch something. <laughs> That's how they got the message. And it worked. Right. It was brilliant, yeah. So, of course, um, I'm very particular how well they have to be made. And the first rooks were pretty awful, but I bought them all because I was so thrilled to encourage them. Mm. So they all had a bit of money in their hands, you see. So, yes, and so then it's gone on from there, really. And Chrissy, with her skills as a rehabilitation officer, we take white canes out. We try and collect as many white canes as we can. We buy new when I have enough money. But other than that, we buy, we get second-hand ones. No, there's nothing out there. There's not a thing. It's still sh- no equipment for blind people mm. at all. So I love to buy talking watches. Oh, we do. Talking watch? Talking watch, yeah. I've never come across that. Yes, uh-huh. they, they talk, they tell you the time. Anyway, we took one out to this lovely old guy, and he came in this day with a letter, beautifully written letter. Obviously, he'd got somebody to write it for him, and he said he can't get over his talking watch. It's the first time he ever knew what time it was to pray. Oh, I know. It's <laughs> very emotional stuff. You'll end, I'll end up crying. Mm. But uh, yeah says it's the first time. Something as simple as that, you know. 
It, it released him. It gave him the freedom. He didn't have to ask all the time. Mm. Wonderful. I know. I'm going to have you in tears. No, it, it's very, very mm. moving. You, you would have a fit if you came and saw these kids blind. It's it's very, very sad. But they're all happy. They're all laughing. They just have pretty tough life. They live in isolation. They can't be let loose. In Gambia, it's been a huge learning curve for us. We went there totally oblivious to anything really and after 12 years we've discovered the um, stigma terrible stigma you've got voodoo and black magic uh, you've got a lot of superstitions people are going to catch it they're going to turn blind so they'll see a blind person across the road so we've discovered that a lot of people won't use their white canes that we take out Chrissy trains them mobility skills because we've had one girl ice too lost all her teeth beautiful looking young girl young mum with a baby gone down a hole smashed all her face mm. if she'd had a white cane but she didn't know that hole was there you see anyway next visit where's your white cane ice too she wouldn't say anything she shook her head we paid actually for her to have new dentures in so that she looks nice and she can smile now <laughs> <laughs> anyway um, she wouldn't t- tell us so I asked somebody and they said, oh, no, nobody has to know she's blind. She's terrified anybody finds out she's blind. They have an awful fear of people knowing they're blind. So there's a lot of people who have trained. We go out there and there's no white cane. Anyway, we persuaded Isa too that if we got a cane that wasn't white and we had it all painted with glitz and it was cool and our friends could tell it was ever so cool, this cane, she would have it. So she got a cool a cane that was glitzy, gold glitzy. <laughs> I mean, other people don't know it's a An accessory, cane. as it were. But, yes, but she can mm. use it to stop where there's obstacles in the road, you see. Mm. So Chrissy's been incredible because a lot of them have a little bit of sight and she'll bring magnifiers out and she'll try and just find a magnifier that might help them read with lights in them, you know. So, yeah, so she goes around the school children and tries to help. And there's no no training for teachers to do with blind out there at all. She's done as much teacher training as she can. She's trained rehab people to be rehab officers as well. We've tried that. Whether they carry it on while we're not there, we don't really know. It's a very difficult one. How regularly do you go, Heather? When I can afford to go. With not having charitable status, my friend Leslie, um, she started up a limited company for me, a CIC, mm. a, a community interest company. So I have to fund it myself. Mm. I don't get any funding from anywhere. But I've had lots of friends over the years, lots of supporters. I appeal to all the rug-making groups out there. I got in touch with them all. And I said, if anybody wanted to do any fundraising, it would be nice, the the rug-making groups themselves, helping fund me. And Durham in particular have just a little table where people bring bits and pieces and they put coppers in the pot. And every now and then they bring me a cheque for £200. They've kept me going, Durham. Mm. Uh, So there's lots of little rug makers out there that have done this for me. Uh, There was the Richmond Choir, the the, Mm. the station singers. They did a concert in St Mary's and I got a few hundred pounds from that one recently. So, yeah, so every now and then I get a nice surprise, you know. (laughs) But I managed to go about once a year. I used to go twice a year because I was teaching a lot in America. At the time, I was going twice a year to America as well. Mm. And so I was really pushing it over there and pleading for money over there. So I'd come back with a thousand pounds in my pocket. Right, I went so to Canada you, mm. to, to speak at a conference in Ontario and uh, I wasn't asking for money, but I'd given a talk and somebody stood up in the audience and said, who's got a big shopping bag? 
And somebody said, well, I have. She says, is it empty? She says, right, well, pass it round. Throw your dollar bills in, girls. And I got a thousand pound. Brilliant. <laughs> From Canada. Yes. That was a few years ago. Mm. So, yeah, so it's wonderful. I do spend quite a lot of money in Can- in um, Africa. You, you, it's not like India. To me, it was a huge shock because you go to India, you can't get rid of your money. It's 50 pence for a meal. Mm. But over there, it's Western prices. This is why they can't buy medicines. I had to pay £10 for a little nasal decongestant. They come in from Germany, you see, the, the drugs, I think. So they can't buy medicines at all. And you know what the main cause of blindness in the children? Well, I, was, I was actually wondering why so mm. many blind. Well, there's lots and lots of reasons. We have blind people here, yes. you know, just the same, but there's lots of diseases out there. But you've got a river blindness as well over there. You've got hygiene, which is untreated conjunctivitis. Yes, I was going to say. Mm. And the eyes are permanently streaming because you've got the Sahara dust. Everywhere you go to red dust, the eyes are full of dust all the mm. time. And they get conjunct device. I'm not saying it's the dust. I'm presuming that one. So, you know, I can't um, argue about that one. But they get conjunctivitis, untreated. Untreated. And also, Vicky tells me, vitamin deficiencies as well, because they only eat rice and fish heads. They can't buy fruit and vegetables. They're all there. Mm. Uh, but the deer, they're expensive to buy. And these people can't buy stuff like that, you see. They live off rice, really. They have a terrible diet. So there you go. So my whole idea at the very beginning was that if there were a sale of the rug, a rug could buy the medicine for a child for the conjunctivitis to save his sight, Mm. it's worth 10 years graft. You know, Mm. this is what we've done. This is my policy. This is what I work on. So... They're making rugs there they and are. selling them and then well, I'd raise self-funding enough money. that way. I've saved up and saved up, made enough money by fundraising to lease a building. Now, I had great ideas of building my own place out there. It's, oh, I've had all sorts of ideas that have all fell mm. by the wayside because I never had the money. But in the school grounds, there's one school that this David Poynton and Pip Land were working at at the time. And it's run by a charity from Britain. They have one school with maybe 50 children in for the whole of one country. Mm. So they are the chosen few can get to this school, you know. Whereabouts is that? Then? It's in in this in this in middle of Gambia. It's only a tiny little country, Banjul. It's in Banjul, Gambia, and they've got this one school. So the blind people are used to coming into this compound. It's walled off, and they're safe in there, and they know it. You see, so in that compound there was an office run by office staff for the school mm. and it became vacant and I heard about it and they needed money, desperate for money so they'd rent it off so I got in there and said can I have it so I managed enough money to pay a lease on it for 15 years Right. so we have our own workshop and then a friend called Dave who lives in Grinton he came over and he painted it and we found the brightest colours we could find so it stands out as purple, orange and red and yellow and, you know, a lot of them with a tiny little bit of sight were so thrilled because they could see it. Mm. All the buildings are cream. Right. Yeah. And this bright orange, uh, <laughs> the African colours, yeah. Mm. So we've got our own place now and it's like a gallery. All the rugs are hung on the walls. It's open to the public. Trip buses will come in. And they come in there every day, so many of them, and they'll work. A lot of them aren't coming in because they live a long way away. Now, that's another huge problem in Gambia. There's no transport system. Mm. There's no phone system that I know of, but there's no transport system. 
not that they can afford. You see, it's taxis everywhere. Mm. And, of course, these people have no money. So only people that live within that vicinity can get to the workshop and work in there. Other than that, they're miles away. So when I, they know I'm coming, I'll have about 40 of them and I pay for them to come from all over Gambia. So I spend about £2,000 on them every time I go out. Mm-hmm. And that's to cover, they get so much money every day. They'll come and stay with relatives near the school so mm-hmm. they can work in the school. They're making rugs at home, you know. It's like a little cottage industry now. Right. Oh, I love it when I visit the <laughs> compounds and they don't know I'm coming. Mm. And I'll just uh, creep in the compound and there they are sitting down on the sand, you know, because it's all earth, it's a mm. desert land. And there's about five of them making a rug all together. So the person I've taught has taught the rest of the family, you see. Yes. And it's lovely. Oh, it has me in tears. <laughs> but it's been very, a, very worthwhile. Yes, it's been fabulous. And um, I had to source the fabrics. I've had my problems. It hasn't been a smooth ride. I've done talks at the Rotary and I've fought tooth and nail to get help and funding and nothing's ever, ever happened. You know, I put myself through the mill going to these posh meetings and my knees knocking, you know. And one of the, the, the Gambians would say, oh, I hope those rugs are clean because they know they're made by the blind. Really? So there's huge stigma. Mm. But the greatest thing of all that we have done is started to book a trade stand at the trade fair. They have a football stadium and every year or twice a year they have all these stalls that people come in from all over Africa, Nigeria, all the different places and they have these trade stands. So I would have one for my blind people. So it's all to pay for and they, without mm. me they could never do it because I'd pay about two or three, four hundred pounds for this to happen. Mm. So there they are, they were terrified to go in front of the public eye. So I'm there with my sewing machine, little hand one I took out. I'm sitting there in this stand, um, just foot three walls, and I made it like a gallery with rugs hung all the way around. And I had three or four blind people sitting there in front of the public eye making the rugs. And hundreds of people are coming past, thousands, school children, and I'm listening to conversations. He's blind, don't go near. Oh, how can he make a rug? He's blind for goodness sake. And I'm standing there like an educator saying this guy is extremely intelligent and he has very good hearing. And, you know, it's not his fault he's blind. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to catch it. So eventually, after years of doing this, they're all thrilled to go and make the rugs out there in the public eye now. Now, they did a trade fair a couple of weeks ago and they made 50 rugs. They sold 50 rugs in mm-hmm. four days. Oh, that is good. Yes. And the greatest thing of all was the president's wife came along and bought five rugs. <laughs> that would be on television, you see. Yes. So they're very, very proud of that. So, yeah. So Hope, the, Hopefully that's turning a, a bit of a corner then in more acceptance. Oh, yes. it's well, That's the greatest thing, really. It's giving them confidence. It's giving them independence. Mm. It's, it's uh, educating other people. I mean, what you're saying with your fundraising, if anybody wanted to donate, oh, what, yes. what would they do? Well, you can go on, on my website, PayPal, Rugged, look up Rugged. Mm. Uh-huh. There's video footage. That video, there's a little video out there on YouTube called Hooks and Eyes. Mm. There's quite a few out there that I've done. And uh, if you look up Rugged, you'll find some bits and pieces. But be aware that I am a bit older now than some of those videos were made. <laughs> Somebody said, oh, I saw a video of you the other day, but you didn't look anything like that. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yes, I've got a bit older. <laughs> yes, I've got on. <laughs> 
just to finish off now, then you're going to tell me about something interesting that you're organising later on this year. Yes, I've got a conference happening in October, October the 8th. I've got 130 international visitors coming to stay in Wreath. It's called TIGA, which stands for the International Guild of hand Drugs. And every three years it's hosted in a different country. I was asked to do this six years ago, actually, when I was in Australia. And then three years later, it went to Vancouver Island. And of course, I had to go out there, didn't I, to, to speak about them coming to England. And because I'm president, I can say where it's held. And I decided I would have wreath. And why not bring them to the Yorkshire Dales? Uh, what lovely a place could they be? You know, I've had lots of American visitors in the past and they've all loved it. So I know it could be well, very well received. Mm. Well, you're a very busy lady. Yes. I'm sure you'd, you'd, you've done a lot and a lot more to come to. Oh, yes, I hope thank, so. <laughs> thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you, Heather. This is from Susan from Inside Yorkshire, signing off.